This upcoming concert season will be all about the boots, and Tecovis is your stop for the best in Western style. Tecovis has seasonal and limited edition offerings this spring and summer, including men's and women's boots, apparel, hats, bags, and more. All Tecovis boots are made by hand in a time-honored tradition with timeless styles that are always on trend. And Tecovis has first wear comfort with little to no break-in period. It's hard to find this level of comfort paired with this level of style. Stop by your local Tecova store, have a complimentary drink or two, that's WCB style, and shop new styles. The smell of fresh leather and friendly staff are at your service. Many stores even have leather custom branding to make your boots truly personalized. And with regular live music and events, there's no in-store experience like it. If you can't make it into a store, just visit tecovas.com. That's T-E-C-O-V-A-S.com. They offer free shipping on all boots, as well as free returns and exchanges, and ship right to your door. Go to tecovas.com and find your new favorite pair of boots today. Fishing like a local isn't just about catching fish. It's about connecting with the environment and the people who call it home. It's about hearing the stories and traditions that have been passed down for generations and sharing unforgettable moments with the people you meet along the way. Fishing like a local is having an experience that stays with you forever. And with Fishing Booker, you can experience it too, no matter where you are. Discover your next adventure on Fishing Booker. You're listening to the Fish Untamed Podcast, your home for fly fishing the backcountry. This is episode 104 with Jeff Lund on the wilds of Alaska. Um, all right. I, well, I just love to get a, a background on all my guests, um, in particular, how they got into the outdoors and fishing. So tell me how you got your start in fishing and uh, specifically in fly fishing, if you've, if you've done much fly fishing. Uh, my parents moved to Alaska when I was five. So um, part, of the, part of the program is just self-sufficiency. And so we'd uh, ride our bikes to the river whenever we could. Uh, parents took us down to the river to fish and whatnot. So my earliest childhood memories are fishing at the river. Uh, dad bought a boat and so we fished out in the ocean a little bit too uh so it's just all outdoors all the time uh Klawak, alaska has about 700 people which is about the same amount it had when i grew up there and so it wasn't uh certainly not a, str- a sprawling metropolis um but uh yes yeah, so we so we played outside a lot um had a lot of fun and then um i didn't fly fish until i was post-college teaching in California. That was just seemed like the best way that I could adhere to all the regulations. I was a little bit scared and intimidated because this section of the river was single hook barbless. This one, you could use bait. And so it was just, what, what can I do that's, that's going to ensure that I'm going to be uh, safe and, and, and adhering to the regulations? So uh, fly fishing seemed to be that uh, that way. And then I reread The River Runs Through It and of course watched the movie. And I thought, okay, yeah, yeah let's just do that. Um, so that was fun. Uh, that was a couple of years into my teaching career. So I've been uh, fly fishing for 15 or so years. Um, really, really enjoy that uh, quite a bit. Every summer I'd come back to Alaska and I would, I would fly fish instead of uh, spin cast fishing. So uh, that's a lot of fun. 
Um, as far as writing goes, I started writing an outdoor column when I was living in California, and I brought it back to Alaska when I moved back in 2013. So I think that kind of covered everything, but not a, not a very surgical uh, approach there. But yeah, I've been, uh, been the outdoors <laughs> since I was a little kid. Fishing, uh, started hunting when I moved back in 2013 too. So got to do it if you live in Alaska. Were those regulations in California like a, a statewide kind of issue where there's all kinds of different regulations that are kind of leaning toward, you know, single barbless hook and things like that? Or was it like your local area that just happened to have a couple of rivers that had pretty strict regulations? Uh, it was mostly on rivers that had uh, like a, a small remnant of uh, Chinook run. So the lower Sacramento River, which is anything below Lake Shasta, um, fantastic trout water fishing, just so awesome, uh, big trout, but they also had some Chinooks that would come up. So there were times they would close that river um, because you'd have, you know, a couple uh, a couple kings that were in there spawning. Um, and then some of the other rivers that had, I'm not sure why they, they did regulations because there weren't any Chinook runs, but there'd be, be sections of the water where you could use uh, single barbless and, and others. And I'm not really sure why. I think it was just maybe for the population or something like that. But uh, uh, yeah, you definitely see some, and then closures too for uh, not even emergency closures, just the trout season. It's not going to be open because, you know, this is what's going on. And again, a lot of that, um, a lot of the closures had to do with uh, the remnants of the, of the Chinooks. Um, the sad reality of that was uh, PG&E, which is the electric company, they had their dams on the rivers. And so, they would raise and lower the level of water based on the demand for electricity. And so there are a few times when the, the river was closed um, to allow the, the Chinook to spawn, but then they would drop the water level. And so the reds of the Chinooks would then be out of the water. And it was, it was just, it was ridiculous, but that's just, you know, you have the people who need the power. And then you have the people who want to preserve the fish and they're not really talking and they're not saying, hey, okay, yeah. well now because the fish are, are spawning, we need to make sure that we keep some consistent water flows uh, so we don't wipe them out. But Right. What was the fishing like in California? Like what did you fish for mostly? Did you ever get up into the mountains and do any of the like golden trout or any of those um, cool species they've got up in the, in the Sierras and stuff? Yeah, that, a buddy of mine, uh, we definitely went in as many trips to the, to the Sierra as we could. It was so much fun. And there was a trout slam where you got a, a brown trout, rainbow, rainbow, brookie, and a golden all in one day. Um, oh, cool. And so we, we did that. And I, I'm not really big for slams and things like that, but it was kind of a cool little challenge. And the golden was the um, was the most difficult, but uh, I mean, it was absolute sworn to secrecy, but it was fun. It was one of those small little, little creeks and you're laying on a piece of granite and you know you have to have 10 feet of your cast last outside of the wa- land outside of the water and just the little bit of tippet with the fly uh, into the water so it was just super cool and then you got to kind of jump up and set the hook and yeah it was it was a pretty cool experience to to look at these fish and if you did splash your cast then the thing was going to just go and hide so it had to be really technical and it was pretty fun you know but just for a, a you know 6 inch fish but uh, that was that was super cool so yeah. we did a lot of that um and then got into some on the eastern Sierra. There was some um, pretty nice rivers with some with some nice trout in there. So I uh, did as much as we could because yeah, that's what you got to do. Yeah, yeah. Those golden trout up in the mountains are uh, definitely high on my bucket list. Like I, I really want to get out there and do that at some point. I think just the scenery and I, I like fish that feel like a little 
a little hidden gem. Like there's not a lot of them. There's like some little pocket of them. Um, that that kind of situation really appeals to me. So uh, I'm really jealous of you there. But tell me how Alaska then compares to that. I mean, obviously these are two very <laughs> different lifestyles and landscapes. So um, you're in Alaska now. Tell me, tell me more about that. Uh, my wife and I were actually talking about how we miss trout fishing. She got her PhD at University of Wyoming, and so while she was doing her research during the summers, I was down there, and we, you know, we fished the the Platte River, and we'd go into the to the Big Horns and whatnot, and had a lot of fun fishing for trout up here. Southeast Alaska is seventeen hundred islands, and it stretches a, a very you know long area, but you can't get to other areas because you know it's islands. So uh, you have a boat, so you can access some of these rivers, but it really is. You don't have large swaths of land that's being drained by these rivers. And so if you think of iconic rainbow trout, you think of the 30 inches in the Bristol Bay area or a Kenai River or whatnot. Those are massive rivers that uh, a lot of nutrients and so you get really big fish. These coastal creeks that are on islands don't have, you know, it's just not as big. Um, if you have some a, a nice lake system with a lot of nutrients, you can get some trout. They're going to be uh, bigger, but a good looking trout is 16 to 18 inches. Um and of course, you don't have variety. You have some rainbows. You have some uh, some coastal cutthroats. But you know, you're not going to get those those bus looking uh, or or submarine looking thirty inches that you get up north. So, um, and then you don't have it. It's not year round. Um, it's open year round, but the fish aren't really around year round. They kind of go and they uh, they sink down in the in the lakes and whatnot, and, and kind of winter over. You get some good steelhead runs, which is a lot of fun, but again, that can be a little bit picky too based on the weather. Right now, it's really, really cold. The water's low, um, so they're not really moving up, pushing up there in the lakes uh, or out in the ocean. So um, way different. You can't just kind of pick a river, drive to it, and see what's going on there. Um, you don't have the the variety and the choices. You know, When we were in, in Laramie, it was, hey, do we want to go down into Colorado? Do we want to go north? Should we go in the the Wind River Range. We go to Bighorns. We did a trip uh, out to Idaho and and did a big loop down into Colorado. So it was super fun to be able to do that. So you really don't have those options. It's just wherever the the weather allows you to get to uh, in your boat or skiff, and, and then you hope that no one else is at the dock or is anchored there or mooring buoy, and um, which is which is crazy because one other boat just kind of ruins your day. Some of these rivers have you know three or four good little spots to fish, and they can hold maybe one or two people and. Um, your steelhead run is, you know, in some of these small creeks, your steelhead run is, is dozens of fish, you know, maybe a hundred fish. Um, so if you have a whole bunch of people on there, it just doesn't, doesn't have the same feel, which, uh, which is weird to have, to have anybody else on this river. It's, it's almost offensive, but, uh, that's the attitude, <laughs> I guess. That kind of surprises me to hear because I, I feel like when I picture Alaska, I picture um, just kind of like endless opportunity. And I, I guess that doesn't necessarily, they're not mutually exclusive, but um, I picture, you know, showing up to a river and there just being such a vast area to, to go to that um, I wouldn't expect that seeing one or, one or two other people would really matter that much. But at the same time, I can imagine that you don't expect to see people because it is so vast. So when you do, you're like, I'll just go somewhere else. Is Am I like on the right track with thinking that or um, like... <laughs> Why Why does one or two people really like ruin your day? Um, I'm territorial, I guess. Uh, I'm selfish, okay. <laughs> greedy, all those things. I think okay. it has to do more with uh, when, when you take the boat out somewhere because you put so much more effort into getting to this area. And because you put fo- forth so much effort, you want to be rewarded a little bit more. Um, the um, If you go further north into the interior when you can drive, it's similar to down south where you can drive and you can get to these different rivers and you know, you're know you crossing a river every 10, 15, 20 miles that might have some fish in it. Um, down here, most of the trout 
um, either come up out of the lakes with the salmon and when the salmon start to run. And so your, your trout fishing happens to correspond a lot more when the salmon are around. Um, so right now, if you went down to the river and there's a river that's, there's a couple of rivers that are right here in town and there might be a couple of trout, but you know, you kind of want to leave them alone because the water is pretty low. It's pretty cold. And so a lot of people just kind of, let's just, let's just wait until the salmon are running. Then you have the dollies push up. You have the, the rainbows are really getting after it too. So there are some, some opportunities, but you don't have that resident trout population that you have down South, at least here in, in, in Southeast. Um, so you have some, some sections or some, um, swaths of time in which there's not a whole lot to fish for except for steelhead in the winter, which is a great alternative. Um, and some of those areas that are, that you can drive to, everybody knows that the, it's, it's steelhead time. And so you can get 15, 20 people at this one spot where the uh, river dumps into a lake and it's just, it's that, that combat fishing because you can't really go anywhere else. They're all just kind of nosing up into the river a little bit. They haven't gone fully into the river waiting for the next big rain. So the water level comes up so they can push up. Um, so you just kind of hanging out at this one spot and you have spin casters there and you have fly anglers there and you have people with different ethics and morals and attitudes about what the, the fishing should be. And so I, I steer clear of that. It's just not the experience that I want. I sound like a total snob, but no, I, I get think it. Of fly fishing, my most ideal f- fly fishing is just to have that, to be able to fish things on my own terms, um, and be able to have that solitude and not just, you know, there's, there's there's some fish there and I could get one, but you know, you're just going to be tense and it's just competition where it's kind of like the experience. And so if you do take your boat out somewhere and you see someone else, it's not a, it doesn't ruin your day, but, uh, you're like, all right, well, hopefully this guy's at, at, spot two and I'll go to spot three and hopefully things work out and you know maybe I know the person what's the uh overall access like in Alaska because I picture well I I think I've heard that there's you know a ton of public land up there but I also assume that a lot of it is um kind of roadless and trailless and just kind of wild um so do you you know is there a lot of water that you can access via road um do you really need a boat to get to the good spots do you ever do like a fly in like how, how do you access the vast public lands you've got up there most of prince of wales island where i grew up has uh, there's a nice road system and so the the access is is pretty substantial um, especially compared to, to ketchikan where i live now where roads intersect um one uh, two there's a river in kind of downtown it's more of a more of a creek um that still has a couple trout in it and gets a very small run of, of steelhead still which is crazy considering the economic past of of mining and logging and everything like that so the, the fact that any fish are, are still in there is, is pretty crazy um, there's another lake that uh, that gets some so those can be hit by by road but everything else in ketchikan you're you're taking a boat to you're doing flyouts to um, so it's pretty pretty tough to get around um, f- different communities uh, further north Juno on the road system is a couple spots where you can get uh, you can get some fish and yeah for the most part it's just kind of a fly out type of program where just people kind of wait for for the fishing to to be good um, you have fishing season you have hunting season and you kind of have the the winter season if there's some steelhead in the local creek um, but all the communities are near at least a river too that was just kind of one of the main reasons they were founded in that area so um Variety is lacking for the most part, except for Prince of Wales Island. Um, but each community has has one or two quality options. So uh, that's another reason why why some of the sometimes Alaskans are very very helpful and very welcoming of of people. Um, but with some of these smaller rivers, you know, they're you know they can't hold a lot of people. So the people who want to 
take on an op- an economic opportunity or an entrepreneurial opportunity and and guide um, you know this these are smaller systems and so they don't want to have the big big guided program or have uh, suburban showing up to their spot and whatnot so there's a different level of ownership which isn't all that different I guess than uh, your typical local versus non-local um, issues but uh, um, yeah when you only have a couple rivers that you can go to effectively if you can't afford flyouts then you're going to be protective of those rivers. But uh, further north in the uh, interior, it's you have a lot more um, access to that. Is there a, a big culture of locals doing flyout trips, or is that more of a, I'm coming in with a bunch of money as a tourist, and I'm going to pay to go on this epic fishing adventure? There are some, some people who have their own planes. Aviation is a big uh, thing here in Southeast Alaska. I have It seems like every year I have four or five students who are graduating seniors who want to be pilots. Um, and not all of them end up being pilots, but a good number of them do. And so it's, that's part of the culture. You have a family who grew up in the, in aviation and they fly. And so because they have their pilot license, they're year round pilots here and they'll, they'll fly uh, friends out to, to some of the lakes. And there's some really fantastic trout fishing in, in some of the lakes. And so off the cruise ships, people do uh, some flyouts, uh, and then some of the locals do too. But, uh, yeah, it's, it's pretty, you're, you're still pitching for gas. I've never done that. I've never been invited on, on one of those trips because that's not everybody, but, uh, there definitely is some, uh, some families who do that, uh, who do that for fun, but, uh, the locals aren't really paying, paying for that, uh, very often. Um, if, if the fishing was that much better, I think people might do that, but I think people are, are more, fl- uh, saving for fly out hunts and, and whatnot than, than, uh, than trout fishing. Is there a big subsistence culture in the communities that pop up along these waterways? Yeah, there's um growing up in Cloak, this was in the in the 80s, you know, being a being a little kid, there were there were two blonde kids in the school and that was my brother and I until my buddy Lars moved there. So it was, you know, 60 to 70% native and so you just got a different perspective on just kind of the lifestyle you know, and, and saw the, uh, there was a, uh, we had a native, native carving class. And so I took native carving when I was in, in middle school, there was some language that we learned in, in uh, elementary school. And, um, you know, so you have at the school, kids are carving totems and you have uh, a lot of the native dancing and whatnot. So that culture is much more prevalent and you you get to see a lot more of that subsistence lifestyle, but it's not, wasn't just exclusive to the native population. Um, you had people who they don't eat chicken, pork, whatnot. That's just, it's just, it's way too expensive to buy it at the store because everything has to be barged up from Seattle. Uh, when we first moved here, there was like, you get your produce and bananas were, if they were yellow, you were excited. Um, so, and, and your lettuce wasn't good. So your produce wasn't of good quality. And so it was what, what's around here that we can get. That's going to be, um, good and, and nutritional for us. And, um, hunting was, a was a big part for a lot of people. We didn't really hunt. We moved up from Colorado and, um, Mom and dad did a little bit of hunting uh, for whitetail, but uh, we didn't get into blacktail deer hunting uh, when I when I was a kid. But a lot of fishing, and so a lot of people would subsist off fish um, and then hunting. And that's kind of what my wife and I do now. We try not to eat, um, you know, beef or anything like that. Just whatever we can kill, it'd be great. So uh, get a couple deer, caribou. Um, got a mountain goat last year, and just try not to. It just it, you save money that way. Um, so um, it's it's kind of subsistence in, in, in sort of a different way. I, I think there's the down south subsistence is that you have a sustainable where you grow everything and, and you, you get everything yourself. Up here, subsistence kind of is the context of the native community. Um, and so it's well just kind of the rural 
living is is it's more subsistence but it's never 100 percent. you know no one is uh, 100% subsistence because you're using modern technologies at the very least, you know, so these, these modern advantages, um, make it much more efficient, much more easy for us to, to take. Um, so that's becomes kind of, kind of sketchy there when you start to talk about what, what is sustainable, because if we, if we do want to live a subsistence life, but we take all these modern technologies, we're going to be a lot more efficient and, uh, have much more of a, an impact on the, on the, not only the habitat, but also the species. Is there a legal divide between subsistence and non-subsistence or native and non-native or uh, both? Like, it sounds like subsistence is not inherently tied to native communities, although, of course, I'm sure they are um, somewhat correlated in ways. But like legally, how do those things work? Um, it's, it's It's a really good question. And Alaska was able to to select ways to manage not only populations of, of fish and game, but also um, indigenous populations based on what happened down in the lower 48. And so um, Alaska was rather than do reservations for native populations. They were, they, they set up native corporations. And so Southeast Alaska, you have the Sea Alaska Native Corporation. So you have the people who lived on this land um, are able to, they, they, um, getting into fishing and logging whatnot and invest the money um and so they have this this regional corporation they're able to sustain their lifestyle you get uh, shareholder checks if you're uh, if you're a native and then based on how much the investments uh, improve um you know you, you can make a, a good amount of money um so it's it's a lot better than the reservation system down in in the lower 48 um and in that uh, part of this the uh, rural subsistence um, allows people who live in rural uh, to have different seasons, different uh, regular, well, not di- really different seasons. Um, but take, for instance, Prince of Wales. Man, I'm really jacking up this answer here. I'm using my, <laughs> my hands a lot to try to explain this and try to get things going. The coffee was a little too hot, so I wasn't able to get all of it, <laughs> what enough of it in. Um, so Prince of Wales Island, the, uh, if you are a non-resident, so you, you either live in big city Alaska um, or you live uh, out of town, you are not considered federally qualified. So if you are not federally qualified for subsistence, you can only get four deer rather than five. So I live in Ketchikan, which is not considered rural because um, we have 12,000 people in the city and the borough. So I can go to Prince Wales and I can shoot four deer because I'm a resident, but I'm not federally qualified. So I can only shoot four. If you live on Prince of Wales and you're federally qualified and that's not specific to native, um, you can get five deer and you get an extra month of the season. So it's a way of um, acknowledging rural populations and how much more difficult it could be. And so giving them kind of a first shot at these sort of things, which I think is a great, great thing to do. Um, What's happening in some areas is the disdain for outsiders is making um, local groups want to close down hunting to non-federally qualified users. So this is more of a hunting question, I guess, than fishing. So there's a place up uh, near Kotzebue where they closed it down um, to non-federally qualified hunters. And so even though I live in Ketchikan, I'm I'm a resident, um, I can't go there and hunt because I'm not considered rural. Um, 
And so part of the testimony was because you had people who were flying in from wherever to go caribou hunting, and then they would try to offload the meat to people because they didn't want to pay for the meat to go back with them. Um, it was too expensive. And so that idea that people are flying in to Kotzebue and then getting flown out somewhere, killing caribou and only taking the antlers home, it didn't sit well with a lot of locals. Um, and the, the herd is, you know, obviously in, in, in fluctuation, but um, the the non-resident take was less than 10% per year. And so the evidence showed that, well, they're not really having a huge impact on that, but um, the the federal government, the um, uh, rural subsistence, um, they make their decisions on behalf of these these rural uh, areas. They, uh, they close it down to non-residents. Um, so there's, there's definitely, um, there's a lot, a lot to it. And there are certain areas where people get first fishing rights, um, and you can uh, beach sands, you can set out a net or you can net set. So you, there's different ways that you can get fish if you're rural uh, uh, versus non-rural. Um, same thing with sockeye. There are certain areas. So based on where you go, there are certain things that you are allowed to do if you are a, a rural subsistence um, versus just random person from, uh, from somewhere else or a big city, Alaska. I'm not sure if that made any sense. Yeah, no, it did. This is super interesting. <laughs> um, so it's it's based on rural versus not rural, but is there any sort of component where you kind of show that you are living a, a subsistence lifestyle? I mean, I guess by nature, if you're in a rural area, you probably live a more subsistence type lifestyle than someone who lives in a city, for example. But it's it's just based on where you live. It's not based on you showing that, hey, you know, we we don't have access to this, you know, meat, so we need to get more um, meat this way. Like, I, I don't know. Like, I just pictured there needing to be some sort of evidence of, of a subsistence lifestyle, not just where you live. But it, it sounds like it's just straight up where, like, where you are a resident of. Yeah. And you, you, get, you have to register and get your permit and all that uh, just to make sure. And you have to have your residence. And they ask you um, where you've been living and where you've, you know, your primary residence is. Um, and then because, especially in Southeast, it's, it's fairly obvious you can't drive from, it's not like, uh, I actually live in Fort Collins and I'm going to drive up to, you know, Walden and claim that I'm from Walden and I'm going to get some subsistence type stuff. So it really is the, the, the geography helps to, to make these divides a lot more obvious. Huh. That's so interesting. I feel like this is, uh, this has got to be kind of unique to Alaska in that down here, we've got residents and non-residents. And it sounds like there's almost three levels in Alaska where there's subsistence, then there's Alaska residents, but non-subsistence, and then there would be non-residents, like from other states. So it, yeah. are there like kind of three different tiers? And it sounds like the even the there's a divide between the two Alaska residents that the subsistence people are trying to um, limit the opportunities of the non-subsistence people, whereas down here, that would be the equivalent of residents wanting... Uh, the tag numbers of non-residents to be lowered, but I never thought about it happening within state like that. Yeah, it's we Alaskans like to say that we're really friendly and helpful, and we're you know as Alaskans we get every, get through everything together, and there is a, a sense of togetherness that um, I didn't really see when I was in California because it was probably California. Um, <laughs> yeah. But uh, yeah, th- these are the the types of things when you start talking about resources, you talk about you know, I'm, I'm rural, so I should be entitled to more. And as a non-rural person, I'm thinking, yeah, you should definitely have, have first, uh, first crack because everything is way more expensive there. So, you know, these good faith sort of the decisions that say, all right, well, in certain areas, if you're not federally qualified, you can get two deer rather than four that, all right, at least you can still get deer. Um, but the areas that want to close them down to all outsiders, 
it's a little bit different. When I go back home to, to Kloak, everyone says, you know, welcome home. Well, not the elders say welcome home. And we start talking about deer and someone's going to inevitably say, oh, you know, the wolves are, are reducing the deer population. It's all those um, people from Ketchikan too. And then you can kind of see in their head like, oh, he lives in Ketchikan now. And so there's kind of like a smile and, you know, it's because it's the, the perception is the deer population on Prince of Wales is, is lacking or is starting to go down because of Ketchikan hunters, non-resident hunters, um, and then wolves. When the reality is it's a little bit of everything. It's, it's obviously habitat. It's also uh, wolves. It's also, you know, it only takes a couple bad winters in a row um, and you're going to have winter kill um, plus hunting pressure. So it's a little bit of, of a whole bunch of different things. But the most convenient thing, the thing that you can really kind of tangibly do and look at is say, hey, there's going to be more deer if fewer people from out of from out of state come here or fewer people from Ketchikan come here. And so let's try to limit that. Um, so there's some, some antagonistic attitudes between like Prince of Wales versus here. And then same thing, if you're on the Kenai Peninsula and you, if you live in Soldatna versus live in Anchorage and then drive down. So, um, you have those rivalries, you have those, you know, just it's consistent no matter where you're at. Um, but when decisions can be made, um, that prevent people, like it, that's kind of unfortunate. Good faith decisions seem like they make a lot of sense. Like, hey, let's work out. Let's make sure that we protect this 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 resource. Okay, that makes sense. Yeah, you live here, so uh, things are more difficult, so you should have first shot. No problem with that. Um, and then people are also trying to take that as, uh, let's remove all outsiders, and so we can have our own private hunting preserve, and that's that's where things get a little bit more contentious. Yeah, I suppose little like inter intra rivalries like this exist everywhere. I'm, I'm picturing here, you know, the the western slope. I'm sure looks down on Denver, but then we all unite together against the Californians moving in, uh, and suddenly we're <laughs> yep. <all> Coloradans. <laughs> so it's like, you know, you will find people in any group that will find someone else to hate in that group. But as soon as someone from outside the overall group comes in, you all you all join together <laughs> against them. So I guess this is just yep. more of a slightly uh, there, there's more legality uh, surrounding this one than some of these. Uh, more like just socially, the, the ones that socially exist in bars and stuff um, down here. Yeah. Uh, tell, tell me more about some of these hunts you've done recently. I'm interested to hear about your mountain goat and um, your caribou hunts. Uh, t- just tell me more about those. So it's it's kind of funny, kind of sad that Alaska being so big, it's pretty expensive to travel different areas. And it'd be nice if we could just drive up and do a caribou hunt. Um, but it, it takes a lot of money in planning. So um, spring break two or three years ago, I have a buddy that lives in Fairbanks and they have, um, the, the 40 mile herd is one of the largest caribou herds and the population was, uh, had recovered a lot from uh, the seventies. I think the seventies, it was down to like 7,000 animals, but, uh, thanks to predator management and thanks to management in general, um, it was up near 80,000, I think something like that. And so the concern was because the natural, um, migration had, had kind of changed over the years and they the worry was that there are now too many animals for this area and it was going to degrade the habitat and there wasn't going to be enough food for them and so they allowed two uh, seasons one season was um, at the end of August early September and there was four uh, three thousand tags I think it was three thousand maybe five thousand tags and then a second winter season which is for locals um, or residents because no one's going to want to go out on a snow machine when it's negative 20 degrees to go shoot caribou. But that sounded kind of fun. So I flew up there to, uh, to Fairbanks, buddy Harrison, uh, picked me up. Um, it was negative 30. We, um, 
drove out the road and it was pretty crazy because it won't be above freezing for months at a time up there. Um, so the road, you can't put de-icer down on the road and there's not enough like warm sun. It doesn't melt off. And so you just have, the road will be encased with, um, snow and ice for a couple months. And, but, but it's like a different, I don't know, it's so cold or the composition of the snow is so different that it's not a wet, slick snow. As long as you have like enough weight, then you can, you can drive pretty safely. And so I, I was, I was bare knuckle the entire drive out the road. Cause we were hauling, um, these, these two snow machines, but you know, we're going up and down these Hills and I thought, Oh gosh, at any moment, at any moment, at any moment, we're going to just slip or slide or something. But, uh, that's just kind of, you know, you don't know what to expect. And so things become a little bit different, but, uh, we'd go to a little pull out and we'd, uh, get off the snow machines and we'd drive around for five to 10 miles and look for them. It wasn't really a get up to a knob in glass because, um, and you didn't want to get too far from the road too. Um, when it's, when it's this cold outside, you don't want to get, uh, too isolated and you didn't have a whole lot of, uh, daylight. So five to 10 little a mile circuit looking for just a small pocket and go to the next one, go to the next one. Um, so we were actually had, had called it quits for the day. Um, we were headed back to Fairbanks and on our way back to Fairbanks, we, um, we saw a couple of people that would pull off to the side and they had their uh, snow machines and on the back. You, you're pulling this little sled and uh, they had a couple of caribou. And so we, he saw them. And so we had to slow down. You can't just hit the brakes. Otherwise you're going to slide. So, uh, um, said, Hey, see, so you got some, some caribou. It was kind of our way of asking, "Hey, man, where are they at?" Yeah. And um, he said, uh, "Do you have a Do you have a, a pot for coffee?" And we're like, "Well, you know, we got." Or no, he said, "Do you have a coffee percolator?" And we said, "No, but we do have a pot." He said, "That'll work." Um, so we gave him the pot, and that was his way of saying, "Hey, if you you give me a pot for coffee, then I'll tell you where the caribou are." Um, so we said, "That ah, sounds good." The uh, caribou about four miles that way. So we offloaded real quick because there was only about an hour and a half or so of daylight left. Um, went back there and on the way back there, only about a mile and a half off the road, we saw a little pocket, um, and, uh, so stopped the snow machines and there was over this little draw and, uh, slid down and, uh, took a shot. Uh, Harrison got one, I got one, and then we, uh, had to cut one in half to fit it on the sled, got them up, um, the little draw and then, uh, back to, back to the truck right before, um, sunset. So it was, uh, it was pretty cool, but it was when you, when you're working on an animal, you start to start to kind of sweat, you know? And, and so it was, I, I knew that I was sweating on my baseline. I'm like, Oh gosh, this is horrible because it's negative 30 degrees. And the whole time I was worried about when I take my glove off, if my hand was sweaty, cause there's hand warmers on the snow machine, like, is my finger going to freeze to the trigger? You know, what's, 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 what's a reasonable expectation here? Cause I never hunted in this cold before. And Harrison knew he's, Oh, it's fine. Just, you know, you'll be all right. Just don't sweat. I'm like, well, I'm sweating. I'm sweating. Um, so it was like this, I got to keep moving because, because I've, I've started sweating. If I lose this heat, I'm in trouble. I had base layer. I had fleece pants. I had, uh, puffy pants. And then I had, um, these bibs, uh, refrigerator way cheaper than like your, um, Sitka, Kuyu, whatever. And they're so stinking warm. They're what the people use when they're doing uh, the ice road trucking and whatnot. And then, um, you know, people who work outdoor in the interior, like that's the brand that they kind of go with. And so it was, it was awesome that I had bought snow boots. And so I'm totally bundled up, uh, but I just start to feel that sweat and think, Oh gosh, this is horrible. Like if anything bad happens, like we're a snow machine breakdown away from being in some, some trouble. Um, but, um, I made, uh, 
uh, trip back and then came back for the other uh, half the caribou and we got back and um, so amazing experience, totally fun. And then it reflected that different sort of um, attitude toward the hunt, knowing that this was a local only hunt. So the guy didn't even care where I was. He knew that I had to be a, or that we had to be uh, residents. So there wasn't a, no, you got to figure it out for yourself. It was, yeah, the caribou that way. We're all here for the same goal. We're going there. We're, we're just trying to get some caribou, trying to get some meat uh, for the freezer. You know, there's, this is not a, not a trophy hunt, not a sort through hunt. It's just, we're getting some caribou before the, the quota is reached and, and we're done. So, um, it was really cool to just have that level of, of, of hunt, um, fellow respect. No, I mean, there was kind of a rush against the weather and against the, um, cold, but, uh, yeah, that was, that was a pretty fun hunt. And then I went back in, uh, August of this year for, uh, the archery, uh, hunt on the, on the hall road. Have you heard about the hall road archery hunt? I have heard about the Hall Road, but I don't actually know anything about it. Like I hear it, and I I, I have like a reference that when people reference the Hall Road, I'm like, oh yeah, the Hall Road. But I, I couldn't actually tell you anything about it. So please fill me in. Uh, so it's um I I'd, I'd never never been up there before. We flew up to uh, to Fairbanks. Harrison couldn't go on the trip, so my buddy Ryan and I went up and we rented a truck for like four thousand dollars. The hip trendy thing to do is to rent a U-Haul. And I uh, drive up the hall road. It's like a nine hour drive. Um, so like you're, you're anytime that we saw a U-Haul, like, oh, you're from <clears throat> Wyoming or Colorado or something like that. And you were listening to some podcast where someone else talked about renting a U-Haul. Um, but we rented a truck just because we wanted just that sturdy. We wanted a real vehicle. We didn't want to, to slum it, especially if um, there had been some snow the week before. And so we didn't want to be in a compromised situation. Uh, so you go up and over the Brooks Range, and you drop down onto the North Slope, and so it's nothing until the uh, the Arctic Ocean, and it's just an absolutely stunning landscape. And you're following the pipeline, and some parts are paved, but for the most part, it's uh, it's gravel. And then you just you see some of these truckers that are coming down from from Prudhoe Bay, and you think, man, this is a this is a this is a pretty beautiful, but long stretch of really nothingness. The last gas you have is, is on the South side of the Brooks range. And, um, then there's just nothing, no services up there until you get to dead horse, which is, uh, the furthest point North. Um, it's at, at the, uh, above the Arctic circle at, at the Arctic ocean, once you hit water. So you go up there and you're just kind of driving along the side of the road. And, uh, there's a corridor where you can't, uh, hunt within five miles of, uh, of the road because you figure that, or you can't, um, rifle hunt you can archery hunt um so if you're just driving around and you got your bow and you see something that's uh, close to the road you try to get out and make a stock uh if you do want to get up on a knob and glass and look beyond the five miles and if you see something worth going at then you can hike in five miles uh, with your rifle and then you can uh you can get it with a rifle that's what we wanted to do we wanted to get further back than other people were willing to go and so we hiked five miles in but we didn't see anything and the landscape is so stinking flat it's hard to decipher if there's like a little mound um, or if it's texture or if it's nothing. And that was the first thing that fooled us. We saw a couple um, cows and calves and we figured, let's just keep going this way. And then we glassed and we saw this patch and we figured it was like a, like a nice mound where we could kind of hang out. It was going to be dry because um, the, the tussocks and the, the tundra is just it was wet and sloppy from the from the snow the week before so there's about three four inches of rain 
of, of water that had accumulated. And so you're just like hopping on these, these tussocks, trying to keep your, your feet dry, um, for five miles. And we got to that, what we thought was going to be a cool glass knob, but ended up being like the size of a pitching mound. I thought, man, how in the world did, were we off by so much? We thought this was going to be a nice dry knob with some texture where we were going to be up higher and we could glass, but it was like a standing on a pitching mound. And we thought we can't even pitch our tent here. So we walked five miles back to the truck, totally soaked. Um, just, there's no way that, it, that you weren't going to get wet. Um, we stopped trying to hop on the tussocks, um, and just started trudging through the, the water because it was going to be way faster that way. Didn't see any caribou after those first couple that we saw right off the road. Uh, so we kind of pissed off, uh, marching back to the truck, just, just angry. So we got back to the truck, dried out. And then we just ran the, kind of the road system. And it was amazing how many other people were up there. And that's, that's, as we started to drive kind of back and forth, looking into these areas, um, the people that were up there that were locals hunting plus, uh, people from down South, it was, you didn't get that feeling of loneliness that I thought I was going to feel. You get to the Arctic, uh, north of the Arctic circle and you're on the, the North slope and there's just nothing out there. I expected to just have this feeling of absolute isolation and loneliness, but there was enough hunters where I thought, Oh, I'm not lonely at all. This is actually pretty crazy. We're going to have to hope that we see something before someone else does. Otherwise we're going to have multiple people stalking the same uh, caribou. And that happened on, I think day three, um, Ryan went to, to stalk on this, uh, on this caribou and I was kind of watching from up top and then some guys came from, uh, South and they were making a stalk on a thing. Dude, do they not see us? What's going on here? And the guy, the guy made it to made to the caribou before Ryan did and was maybe 20, 25 yards away. It looked like it was pretty close, but there was, I guess, some texture or something like that in the way. So the caribou bumps right up towards me. So all of a sudden I'm the one who might end up getting the shot. So I get ready and I knock an arrow and I adjust a little bit cause I'm, I'm down as low as I can. It's, um, we're in this little, uh, at the bottom of, um, two like little hills and there's a little Creek in there with some, uh, cover and that's like the only cover there. Everything else is just barren. So I see the, uh, the antlers kind of moving, uh, below me. And so, uh, I, I kind of get ready. And as it starts to kind of pop up a little bit, it's broadsided at 60 yards, but down over a little knob is where Ryan should have been. So this thing has popped out of the lowlands. I have, I have no idea if anybody can understand at all what's going on here, uh, through my descriptions. <laughs> but anyway, um, Ryan couldn't get it. The guy uh, botched his stocks. Now the caribou is right in front of me, but I don't take the, sh the shot because if I miss or I get a pass through, I think the arrow is going to go right to where Ryan is because I can't see Ryan um, oh, okay. right over this, this spot. And so it was just a mess. And the thing takes off. And so I kind of pursue it a little bit. And then I look up uh, the bluff a little bit. And there's someone else that's up there with a bow too. And I think, man, this one caribou did not get shot by four different hunters. Um, and so it was just... It was pretty crazy. And I think that happened a couple more times. We would drive on the road and you would see two different trucks parked and you would see one group of hunters coming from this way and one group of hunters coming from another way. And part of this is because the herd hadn't really congealed and started to move south and migrate. They kind of stayed up there a little bit longer. And so we were a little bit early. wouldn't recommend going at the very beginning of August. I think mid-August is, is probably going to be better. Um, but yeah, it was it was just bizarre because um, it's there's, there's nothing really, there's no there's, there's some texture, uh, once you get uh, closer into like the foothills of the Brooks range, 
but there's not really any cover. And so you, you're trying to make a stock and it's, it's almost impossible. You have to use texture. You don't have uh, bushes, branch cover and stuff like that. And then uh, caribou don't really have a lot of places to hide, um, but then they can see you coming. So it was just pretty bizarre experience. Pretty fun. We ended up uh, both getting uh, some small caribou and we we're excited about that. But um, yeah, so that's, those are the two caribou stories. Mountain goat really quick, took a boat um, for a couple hours, uh, hiked up a mountain, had to use some ropes in a couple spots, but uh, hiked up the mountain, shot a uh, mountain goat and uh, came home. And that was the mountain goat hunt. I tried to do an abbreviated <laughs> one there because uh, <laughs> that took so long with the caribou one. But yeah, just kind of what you do. Uh, the caribou almost sound like our um, pronghorn hunting here. Obviously, pronghorn are known for their like amazing eyesight, but it, it's it kind of sounds the same in that there's no cover. And so you can see them from like miles away. You know, so it, it kind of yeah. feels like you're into animals all day long because because you're like I can see you know four different groups of them right now but they're all four four miles away from me um and then you're like well this is gonna be so easy I'll just walk over to them and it's easy for the first three miles and then suddenly you realize that there's nothing for you to hide behind and it suddenly becomes very strategic and you mess up almost every single time uh and I don't know how how good of eyesight caribou have but it sounds like a very similar um like stalking experience I wish I would have made that connection right at the beginning of the story. It would have made the story a lot better. But yeah, it's very much like that where you can see them way out there, how far you're not exactly sure. And then just a little bit of texture here and there. And then there's little river bottoms. And yeah, it's very, very uh, similar to very similar to that. So trying to get an archery range for a pronghorn seems like absolutely ridiculously impossible unless you can see them and get into some, some texture um, and then make your way to them. But yeah, very similar to, to caribou hunting up there. Why is the U-Haul the current fad on this road? Like, what, what's, what's the argument for bringing a U-Haul up there? I, I guess you can take a lot of stuff. Um, it might be cheaper. It's probably cheaper. But, uh, yeah, I don't, I don't know. I think someone probably got that idea, and then it became this kind of cool, hip, minimalist sort of approach to it. And, um, yeah, I, I, I don't know, to, uh, to each their own. But, uh yeah, we wanted the the truck for all the good things. The truck had two two spare tires. You know, it's gonna be it's gonna be made for that sort of terrain. So taking the U-Haul on that road in some areas is it, it gets pretty uh, um, not horrible, but uh, you know you want to have a good solid truck. So yeah, I, the U-Haul is a thing. I'm looking at the map right now, just kind of like looking at this road, and I see once it gets up farther north, it does start to parallel a river and lots of little like ponds and things. Uh, and you mentioned like little streams that you're crossing and trying to stay dry. Is there is there much fishing going on up that far up north, or is it iced over so much of the year that it's just kind of like you got to come farther south for that? Uh, that river, the Sag River, is uh, it's got a lot of. It's got char, uh, grayling, and so we stopped to fish a little bit on our way back when we both had uh, had caribou, and so uh, we both got uh, a couple of grayling, which is pretty cool to get the Arctic grayling like in the Arctic. It was kind of a a cool little uh, cool little thing there. It looked exactly like the grayling I've caught at different places, but you know that different feel. That's that's exactly what fly fishermen say, right? It's not about uh, this brown trout's going to look a lot like this brown trout, but it's a brown trout from you know, Arkansas versus the brown trout from California, you know, that's, that's just kind of how it is. So yeah, there's definitely some fishing in there. 
And what what's the fishing like for grayling and char? Is it are you are you casting like streamers out for the char? I've never I've never fished for arctic char, but I've seen some like pretty big ones. Um, and I know I've caught grayling on like dry flies, like little tiny dry flies and little tiny nymphs. But what are you doing to catch those fish? I just used uh, a couple nymphs. I I didn't bring. Uh, I just brought one fly box. I was trying to keep stuff as as contained as possible. Um, so I brought some dry flies and a couple nymphs and a uh, uh, couple streamers. Um, and the char are, are pretty voracious. Down in southeast Alaska, we have Dolly Varden, which are, are similar to a char, and just voracious eaters. So anything that looks leachy or, or sculpiny or whatever, they're gonna they're gonna take it. They have to be advantageous uh, because the amount of food up there is. You got to take what you can get when you can get it. So um, yeah, the 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 Sag River braids out so much. Uh, there are some people who. They'll take pack rafts up there and then they'll, they'll row across, they'll float across. So you can get to different areas. So you're not actually on the road. Um, some people also wade across, but that drains a lot of water. And so if you have snow in the Brooks range, as it's melting and moving down there, uh, it doesn't take much extra water. And all of a sudden you can't see the bottom. It's already hard to see the bottom because it's that kind of milky glacial runoff, um, super, super cold. And you know, the difference between wading at knee high and mid thighs is, is massive, especially if you got those, those rolling river rocks that start to give away. And, um, uh, my buddy Ryan, who I went on the, the caribou hunt with, he was, uh, sheep hunting two years ago and there was a spot that he and his buddy were going to cross and they thought about crossing, but they couldn't quite see the bottom. And so they didn't, they went around and a couple of days later, someone was in that same area and they tried to cross and they drowned. Um, oh, so man. it's, that's kind of the scary thing about watching YouTube about how to do the haul road hunt or some of these hunts because, you know, this person's crossing and everything's fine, but that doesn't mean that the conditions are going to be the same. If this person goes in September and the water is, you know, a foot lower, then that's going to be a huge difference. Um, so, yeah, it's you got to kind of – it's okay to, to, to not cross and come back alive and not – you know, right. you, don't, you don't have to go epic. And if you don't feel comfortable with it, it's not the only way to do it. So, um but yeah, that's, it's, it's, it's pretty, it's pretty awesome. Uh, that's for sure. But, uh, different than we thought. Well, just to uh, wrap up, um, tell me about your book. You got, it sounds like you've got one book out and one book on the way. So, uh, tell me about those. Um, my book, uh, a miserable paradise life in Southeast Alaska published it in uh, 2021. And my writing project for 2020 was just to write 5,000 words per month. Uh, just kind of like what life was like. Most people that, that come up here, they write awesome magazine articles, they write books, they're hunting stories and you know, make films and whatnot. And it's really cool to see. I like, I like watching people come up here and really enjoy it because it makes it fresh and reminds me of what I should appreciate. Um, but I wanted to give people an idea of what it's like to live here year round. And so of course, you know, steelhead fishing for January, February, and then March happened. So it ended up being mostly about hunting, fishing, and lifestyle in, in Southeast Alaska, but also a little bit about COVID toward the end because it, you know, it was happening. And so how that was impacting teaching and whatnot. So um, by the end of the year, I was tempted to go back and look at what I wrote in March and April and May and kind of edit it based on information that we now had. Um, but I, I just kind of kept it how it was that way. It was like, this is what I thought at the time and that's it. So it's, it's not a COVID book but happened to be written during the COVID year. So it's a, I think it's a pretty good glimpse about what life is like in Southeast Alaska or particularly Ketchikan because the story on Prince of Wales would be different. The story in Haines would be different. So, um, but fishing, hunting, outdoors, uh, lifestyle. Um, and then there was a lot of stuff I wanted to talk about just as, as far as hunting goes. 
Um, and so my book that's coming out this spring, it's called Beyond the Hunt. And I broke it up into five different sections. So it's not just about hunting um, and tags and whatnot. Uh, talk about the process, kind of getting better at hunting. So the, the first part is some of those clumsy first um, first experiences. And then part two is uh, mentors and talking about people who are uh, impactful in the life of, of a hunter. And it's not just like your uncle or dad or, or someone like that. A lot of times it's, you know, celebrities can be influencers in a, in a positive way. Because if you, if like you're watching Randy Newberg or whatnot, or you're watching Steve Rinella, or you're watching some random person on YouTube and that's your experience. So that's what your idea of hunting is, then that's going to inform your decision-making. That's going to inform who you become as a hunter. And so if you end up following someone on YouTube, who is kind of a, you know, shoot first, ask questions later, um, full send type, then you're being mentored by, but whether you kind of admit it or not, you know, that's, that's influencing you into, to being a type of hunter. So I kind of tackle that a little bit. Uh, part three is kind of life of a hunter. Cause as much as we like to say 24 seven, that's not true at all. Uh, we have our jobs, we have the rest of the year. If, if you're hunting and it's a, it's a one month season, that means 11 months out of the year, you're not hunting. You might be scouting, but you know, total days, if you were to tally total days, you're living a lot more of a life than you are uh, actually in the field hunting. And so talk about uh, that. And then I talk about tags and then I talk about uh, the industry itself. Um, and it's not to be critical of it, just to kind of look at, at some of the elements and some of the things that we have going on. It's, it's a great space to have. Um, there's no gatekeeper. So you can, anybody can have a podcast and you know, anybody can contribute, anybody can make YouTube videos, anybody can write articles. It's just such a great time to be a, uh, a hunter. Um, but there's also a lot of, you know, other things that we should probably consider going forward. And so it's not meant to be an insult or a lecture or anything, but just kind of a, a written ideas about some of these things like, uh, brands and, and selling and spending and entrepreneurship and standing out. So, um, five sections, 195 or so pages, and, um, yeah, pretty excited about it. And where can people find it when it comes out? Will it be available on like your website or on, you know, wherever books are found kind of thing? Where, where can people get it? Um, I publish through Amazon just because the publishing is, it's kind of a racket. Um, you have your main publishers, uh, the publishing has kind of been consolidated. Um, and the process of getting published takes months. And a lot of times publishers won't even listen to you unless you have an agent, so then you get an agent, you do all this sort of stuff. And by the time it ends up being you publishing your book, you're making, you know, 6% of it because it's going to everybody else, your publicist that you had to have and your agent that you had to have so that the publishers would listen to you. So I'm like, man, I, I've been writing an outdoor column for 15 years. So I'm just going to, I'm not, I don't want to get into the whole everything else. So um, it'll be on Amazon. Um, I'll also be able to get on uh, on, on my website, uh, um and, uh, yeah. So if you follow me on uh, Instagram at Alaska line, I'm a lot more active on that one. Um, the mediocre Alaskan is kind of the second one, but, uh, I kind of like use Alaska Lund as my primary Instagram. So there'll be a link there to the, to the website where you can order it or you can get it on Amazon. Great. Well, um, Jeff, this has been a ton of fun. I, every time I talk to someone from Alaska, I just feel the need to go research plane tickets up there and, and go visit. I'm sure it's <laughs> going to happen at some point, but <laughs> it's really fun to hear um, just about the lifestyle. It's so different from it is from what we have down here. So um, thank you so much for, for taking the time to tell me about your, your hunting and fishing stories, and maybe we'll cross paths at some point. Yeah, that'd be great. Thanks for having me on. I really appreciate it. All right, that's a wrap. 
Uh, thank you all for listening. If you want to find all the other episodes as well as show notes, you can find those on fishuntamed.com. Um, you'll also find a contact link there if you want to reach out to me. And you can also find me on Instagram at fishuntamed. Uh, if you want to support the show, you can give it a follow on Apple Podcasts or your favorite podcasting app. And if you'd like to leave a review, it would be greatly appreciated. Uh, but otherwise, thank you all again for listening. I'll be back here in two weeks with another episode. Take care, everybody. <laughs>